for those for those listening, I just want to quickly uh, thank you for popping in and joining the conversation. Uh, I hope you might, if you like conversations like this, support me on Patreon. Um, subscribers will get exclusive access to interviews like this and uh, from other famous people, hopefully, in the future. Um, and I've uh, included a link on how you can do that. Um, and also, this, this conversation will be available um, live uh, on demand. Um, good. Thank you, Doug. Uh, for those who subscribe. Okay. Peter Phillips, thank you so much for joining joining me on my podcast this choir nerd uh it's a it's great to have you on you've been a friend of mine and a mentor as i'm sure everyone knows and uh very i'm sure everyone most everyone will know pretty much uh you know everything about you maybe but uh maybe just take a few minutes to tell everyone uh about yourself and and what you do ah well what I do is conduct the Talis scholars who have specialized in singing Renaissance polyphony for a long time. And over those many years, we've got to know the music really well, the style of it. And we've tried to hone um, a performing style that, that suits the music and at the same time seems exciting to modern people. I say that deliberately because in the old days, we were asked why we, well, whether we were trying to be authentic, mm -hmm. and the answer was not really. I mean, we we couldn't be. We don't know what they sounded like in those days. And anyway, all I wanted to do was look at the music on the page and realize it uh, sonically in my own head. Okay. Great, and we'll talk more about I think authenticity and interpretation a little bit later, but. Uh, this this talk will be based around your book, What We Really Do, which uh, was published a few years ago. But for those that are interested in getting yourself a copy, I've included a link. Uh, we we ran out for a hot second, but now we are we've got more supplies ready, and uh, and I believe Peter, you you're willing to sign sign the ones. Yeah, you, you tell me how many, and I'll I'll sign them. Yeah. So if you buy, I've included a link. If you you can get get this book, uh, which is kind of hard to get, annoyingly enough, in the U.S. for, you know, a reasonable price. Um, but if you get it for thirty-five dollars, Peter will sign it, and uh, uh, it's it's totally a great book, worth reading. And it does not our talk today does not substitute what I think uh, you'll get out of that book. So I do encourage everyone to to buy that, and all the proceeds will support the Talis Scholars directly, as much as I would love to. Take a little something off the top. Uh, that is not what I want to do. So I hope you will support the Palace Scholars and buy that book. Uh, so I do want to reserve like 10 minutes to the end for a Q&A, a short Q&A. So if you have any comments or questions throughout this conversation, uh, feel free to throw in the comments and we'll, and we'll try to get to those uh, at the end. Uh, so got a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. Uh, we'll see if we get, you know, how much of, of, of it we can get through, but uh, in the intro here, I played your Speminolium, which was uh, hilariously featured in uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey book, in this, in in a hot, steamy sex scene. What was that like for you, realizing that that had happened? I wasn't there. <laughs> um, well, I was rather impressed, really. I mean. It brought the idea of the, the mention of, of Talis and Spem to, to many people who would never otherwise have come across his name. Mm -hmm. And then we, it went on to a disc or a sort of compilation disc, I think, of all the music that was talked about in the book, and sold tens of thousands of copies. So more people got to know. I'm, I'm, all I'm really interested in, my mission, <laughs> is to get people to listen to this wonderful music and, if possible, like yourselves, sing it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so peter what has your life been like since the pandemic how are how are you and the talus scholars doing um now when we can't be on stage well we aren't doing anything we can't be on stage we can't get into an airplane we can't congregate we can't have an audience 
And yeah. we can't stand anywhere near each other without a mask, even with a mask on. And that could be interesting. I mean, I'm, I've yet to hear that, actually. <laughs> I gather online that, that some people have been experimenting with singing through a mask, and it kind of works okay. So we, that might be the way to go forward. Anyway, um, what I've personally been doing is editing um, the, the tapes, as we still call them, of, of a record we made of music by John Shepherd. Uh-huh. Is that is that going to be released uh, soon? Well, it depends how much longer this goes on because I'm working on it every day at the moment, which normally I wouldn't, but um, I imagine mm -hmm. it might be released quite soon. Our last Josquin disc, we, we're, we're releasing those nine discs of the masses of Josquin to, mm -hmm. to coincide with his anniversary next year. He's 500 dead next year. Oh, yeah. um, our ninth disc and last disc will be available this November. Mm -hmm. Are you doing much... Are you doing interviews like these? Hmm. I've done a few. Yeah. yeah. Supporting, mainly supporting things, actually. I'm, I'm the patron of a festival here, and I did another one for something abroad. Anyway, that's that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I am. Okay. Hmm. So, Peter, you've been doing this stuff for a long time. Uh, in the book, you mention that, that you were chasing a sound that you heard. Hmm. And hmm. I'm wondering... What's driving you now? Are you still chasing the sound in your head, or um, let me let let's start with that question. Okay. Well, I am chasing it. It's a sort of ideal of beauty that I got in my head when I was young, and I've I've been trying to chase it, if you like, or, or refine it, or yeah, create it again on stage every time we give a concert. Yeah. Um, and when I get it. I'm the happiest person on the planet. And I guess it these days quite often. So I'm a happy person. Isn't that nice? It's true, <laughs> I actually know what you mean. Um, yeah, I'm sure you do. What is, how, do you think your, your sense of the, your aesthetic for, for the way it should sound has changed over the years? No, not very much, actually. It was a vision of, an all, oral vision, if you like, of, mm -hmm. of beauty. A beauty in sound, and I thought it was best applied to Renaissance music, partly because no one was doing it in those days. So it was a, you know, it was a good in as a, uh, to a new repertoire. I think it sounds wonderful in Bach. I sound, uh, it sounds wonderful in modern music. I mean, it's the way to, that choirs should sing collectively in tune. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was sort of new, really. I mean. When we started, it it wasn't taken for granted, or even thought to be necessary. Yeah, a long well, I time have, ago. I have to say, and this is probably obvious to everyone uh, uh, listening, but the sound that that I heard the Talis scholars make at Oakham live was my first time. I think two thousand one, maybe, and that really was something I'd I'd never heard before. And and you know, uh, the Bird Ensemble and and many other choirs, I think, are you sort of opened up a, a little pathway for this new ensemble sound that I think many people have kind of jumped on, uh, including myself. And and I totally sympathize that there is something, there is a chase after it that uh, keeps it alive for me personally. Um, what about the music? Do you find that that you've, I mean, you've been doing this a while and even after 10 years of me doing it, um, you know, sometimes I'm saying, you know, this, you know, how many is too many performances of this, you know, talus piece or this bird piece? Mm. Like, uh, how, how have you kept uh, the music um, interesting for you? Well, partly by finding new, new pieces of music by great composers, mm -hmm. to which we apply the same basic techniques, of course. So not very much changes, but we are exploring new, new notes, new, new perspe perspectives in the music. That's one way of doing it. And also, I think, to, to find composers from new school. I mean, the Italians don't sound like the Spanish in, in, in those days, or the English, certainly not like the English. And the English repertoire is, you know, is, is a, just a fascinating thing to explore. You, I'm, if, if the question is, I'm bored with it, I'm absolutely not bored with it. But if the question is also, do I want to do another performance of Talis's Lamentations, which we've done since the beginning, 
virtually, well, I don't know how many times we've done it, then the answer is yes, I do want to do it. <laughs> but I like that. I mean, I am like that. I like, yeah. Are, does the public find these new composers is interesting? Um, do they, you know, does your following expect or prefer, you know, the sort of heavy hitter stuff versus the, the lesser known composers? Well, the public that we sing to is very diverse indeed. Um, I mean, we travel a lot, as you know, and, and when we're singing in China, for example, it's not like singing in Seattle. Yeah. Um, so we choose a, a program that's, but we don't betray what we've set out to do. We, we always sing serious Renaissance music to anyone. We won't do anything else. We sing some modern music, but but basically it's, serious renaissance music and you know they can take it or leave it really and and the interesting thing with a concert in china is whether there's anyone there for the second half of the concert yeah just peter how many concerts do you give a year in a normal year 80 80 concerts mm, it'll be more next year because of the cancellations from this year and so on but 80 gosh that's a lot uh, well, yeah, and, and they're all abroad. That's the thing. They're not on the same abroad either. <laughs> yeah. They're not in the UK or the US. Peter, what, what's your approach to interpretation? Um, and how much is that text driven? Uh, and, and this is an interesting question that I've been thinking about the last couple of years. And I meet uh, various directors of this music and their. Um, how, how some are more um, text driven over others. And uh, I just would love to hear your uh, reaction to that. Well, reaction to what exactly? I mean, <laughs> I'm not the man to exaggerate the text. Mm -hmm. I'm the man to exaggerate the sound that is expressing the text that the group is producing. I don't have a lot of time for conductors who spend all the rehearsal going into the obscure meaning or not so obscure meaning of the text. What they need to be doing is getting their singers to sing together really well so that the music sounds fantastic. Yeah. And I would go on to say, if we're going to talk about text, and I could talk about text for hours if you like. I know. But, uh, right. um, I'd go on to say that the composers themselves, because that was their world, they didn't, they weren't trying to sell anything to anybody. That was the, that was everybody's world that they were expressing through the text of the mass, for example. They were just trying to create something heavenly uh, for the listener with words that everyone knew very, very well. Yeah. I'm trying to do the same with, with the singing, with the performance. Yeah, there's something, uh, and I... And I know people that are more interested in the text than than I am for sure out there that I've met. Um, and and with all due respect to to those people, it, there's something very slightly self-serving about fixating on the text so much in your in your experience on producing the music that uh, I find personally hard to engage in. I mean, I guess there's it's different circumstances if you're on a course and you have you know you're trying to fill hours and hours of rehearsal time. Maybe that. <laughs> Well, well, that's easier. Easier. I can tell you, you can concentrate on the notes. That would be useful. <laughs> yeah, but you know, when we only have a few rehearsals to get things right, Peter, how, I mm. think you're one of the best uh, uh, people that uh, that gets the speed right for this stuff. How do you determine tempo uh, for your for for the performance of this stuff? Do you just kind of just well, I'm, glad. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you say that because I do think that's one of the things that is terrifically important. And I hope I've honed that skill over the years. Um, if you get the tempo wrong, everything can get very difficult. I mean, the singers can't breathe. If it's too fast, they can't breathe. If it's too slow, they have to breathe too often. You know, the building may not take it. It's instinctive, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, you arrive in a new building you've never been in before, or you can't remember what it's like. Japanese concert hall, for example, and you you have to adapt just like that. Yeah. With that experience, I mean, I have got that experience, so I'm not making a big deal of it, but I, I do think that it's an important facet of, of the music making, and it's no good asking the composers what speed they thought it should go, because they won't tell you. 
there's no way they can indicate to what the speed was going to be. Yeah. And then there are relative speeds within a piece. More more difficult again. It's it's not easy, but I think I mean if someone's asking me as a, as, a, as a student, I'd say just do it instinctively. And if you come a cropper, as I did, you learn pretty fast. Peter, do you think your your sense of speed has changed over time? Uh, yes, um, yeah. very slight. I think when I listen to the oldest recordings, they're quite slow. Um. Then I speeded up because I thought that was going to solve a few ensemble problems. And now recently, I think I've slowed down again. But I think <laughs> it's a fraction. That's because I'm getting older. But I think it's a fraction. <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, I, I've had, so I only have a, I only have a, a t mere 10 years under my belt, but I, I, I do find my, the, the more I return to a piece, the faster it gets. And, and um, yeah. I've started experimenting doing stuff in two or, or uh, oh, no, 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 don't do it. No, don't do it. Mm. If you do it in two, when it, I mean, some pieces have to go in two, but, but if they can go in four and you maintain a really strict four, then yeah. all the little notes will be in time, will stand more of a chance of being in time with each other. Yeah. And if you just do two gestures and they all sort of wash around. Yeah, there's a different kind of thing that happens in two. Um, but um, Oh yes. Yes, now I accept that. Well, if if you're all subtle enough, you can do both at once. <laughs> Interesting. You can conduct in four so you get the precision, but you think in two so you get the sweep. I, I do accept that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah th there's definitely a, a threat. Uh of not getting all the notes in there evenly if you if you take it too fast and too or um, uh, so the, the the that business of of the the small notes lining up yeah like a clock ticking that kind of metronomic precision if that's the right word for it yeah. is very very hard yeah but you want to increase the chances of it happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I would suggest you conducting four. So, Peter, do you know? Do you have a sense? What do you think it sounded like back then? And does that? Do you ever spend <laughs> time thinking about that? And, yeah. and with, with have, yeah. authenticity thrown around, and, and some places claiming that the Talos scholars are after it. Um, yeah. Do do you do you think? Uh, have you ever um, claimed that you're trying to achieve some? authenticity of performance or anything no yeah. well well i may have done because that was a bandwagon that was going that uh. was running along when we started i mean the early music bandwagon was quite a powerful one in the 70s and 80s why you know we weren't singing like choirs sang before us in the 60s and you know in england anyway we weren't trying to sing like that we were trying to sing in a new way which was sort of authentic i mean it, it had an authentic ring to it Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the fact is, we have no idea what they sounded like. There's, yeah. there's no way of finding out. The, the, the adjectives they used are just not clear enough. You can't pin it down. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's always odd to me. There's some of these parts that are just so difficult to sing, uh, the parts that lie between, say, the alto and tenor part, for example. Yeah. They're yeah, giant yeah. ranges that, that I just can't no. imagine what what person could sort of manage that uh, easily. Well, I think one thing we do know about how they sang was that they, well, they didn't have voice lessons and they didn't have the experience of having to project their voices over an orchestra, mm -hmm. an orchestral pit into an opera house. I mean, that the bigging up of one's projection that, that required was yeah. something incredible and and of course our, our guys didn't know anything about that i mean our guys are more like you and me hmm. yeah we see and and they probably sang very like us only a little bit better really you think so do you think you think they oh, have no idea you probably, you probably sing an awful lot better than i do in fact i know you do because i've heard you sing <laughs> <laughs> do you think they that, had, 
the range. I'm interested you asked that question about the range of the middle parts because you sang those middle parts. Yeah, I, and I know that they <laughs> range. They can range over two octaves or more. Yeah, and in the modern context, you're expected to deliver all those notes equally powerfully into a big hall without amplification. And I'm not saying you should sing over an orchestra because that's a different technique altogether. You then have to, you know, big it yeah. up. Yeah. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to maintain, I would ask you to maintain a regular uh, presence in, in, the, in the line, even mm -hmm. if it ranges over two octaves, yeah. which is something no one is trained to do. Not, not the big opera people or, or it's just gone out of currency. Those are people who sang in a completely different way from us, which also means it's very hard for us to be authentic. Yeah, yeah. You think they had the same attention to polish and all those kind of musical things that we go for? No. Do you think they cared no. about it the same way? Well, it would be very arrogant of me to say that they didn't, that, you know, that we're better than them. Yeah. All one can do is, is say, well, Palestrina wrote his music for this, some of it for the Sistine Chapel Choir, the Sistine, which he sang in. Mm -hmm. The Sistine Chapel Choir, by our standards on paper, was terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's just how it was. They, they had very, very old people who, who never turned up. Their rehearsals were chaotic. I mean, this is all documented. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, what I wonder, of course, is what Palestrina would say if he heard us sing his music. Would he say, what on earth have you done to this, you heathen <laughs> trash? <laughs> or would he say, that was just incredible. I've never imagined it like that. Mm. Or I had imagined it like that, but I never heard it like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Okay. Peter, in your book, uh, you cite the Allegri Miserere being a, a turning point for the group early on, and or did I just imagine that? You might have made that up a bit, but go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that uh, that that was a hit, the Allegri Miserere, and yeah. uh, resulted in a lot of uh, international touring and and stuff. No, that no? is an I mean, we didn't start to sing the Allegri until we'd been going around for seven or eight years. It never occurred to me, unfortunately, because it was a hit. Once, you know, once we got someone who could sing it and and we recorded it, as you know, at the end of the 70s, it was in 1980, we recorded it yeah. for the first time. Um, suddenly there was a, we had a hit on our hands. Yes, that's true. I see. Okay. And that... That's one of the most requested songs on your on your tours, is that right? Not yeah. not, not to encourage everyone uh, tuning in to ask that of you, but is that right or no? Well, it's often I choose to do it because oh. I'm going somewhere. Well, well, you see, look, very often the, the promoters don't know what to ask for. They just want the talent scholars. That's it. Uh -huh. they, they really don't mind what we sing. Oh, interesting. Which is great in, in many ways. That's that's great. But I want it to be a success, and I want the the, the, the people who are, who are out there to enjoy themselves, and they they always enjoy themselves when the Allegri is on the program. So, although I don't want to do it very much, too much, uh -huh. I'm I'm also keen to do it when I think it's appropriate, when it'll benefit everybody. Yeah, you've sold. Now, when that became a hit, you did, was that a was that a hot seller? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. Yeah, yeah, that's what is up. Mm. <laughs> that came out in 1980 um, on on EMI. It was on a, a cheap EMI label, Classics mm -hmm. for Pleasure. It's called CFP. And um, at, when it first came out, it was just after the well, this is black vinyl days. Mm -hmm. um, it sold for 49 pence. Classics for Pleasure was a cheap label. You've got to imagine 1970, 1980. I mean, we don't remember what it was like. But anyway, it was a cheap label. It went up to 99 pence. So it was still less than a pound. And it sold <laughs> warehouses full. Wow. Wow. That got us going. I mean, that was a good start, you know. Peter, I, I, it just occurred to me that I need to show you something. Oh. 
You still there, everybody? <laughs> Peter, I, I visited yeah. Fran Steele. You know Fran Steele, good, good, old, Fran Steel. good old base Fran Steele, and he gave me yeah. this while I was uh, while I was there. Where? Oh, oh my God! <laughs> that is that is absolutely the original disc, the very first ever. Recorded in half a day, I think it was, with people leaving to sing Even Song and coming back to join in later. It was that kind of day. <laughs> you know, I actually haven't listened to it yet because uh, I need to get my hands on a on a record yeah. player first. It's not, on, it's not on CD. This was was this the very first? You said the very first thing you recorded. Yes. Yes. Huh? Absolutely. Yeah. I did yeah. the artwork. The whole thing was homemade. Really? I did that. Artwork, yes. I mean, I didn't design. That's a um, that woodcut is is actually a, an original woodcut, obviously. But I did all the rest of it with the letter set. It was called with the letters and so on. And the back, I had to try and make the the blurb on the back fit the space as though I'd got a a machine that would justify the columns. And initially, <laughs> I didn't have a machine like that. <laughs> there are some bangers on this one, like Odd Dominum. Mm. Yeah. That's my that's my one of my faves. Uh the Talis Loque Bon Tour. Mm. Uh, Fran's on this. Uh, Harry Christopher is on this. Some familiar yeah. names. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, can't wait to listen to this one. Just if someone has a vinyl out there that they want to lend me. Vinyl okay. player. <laughs> what do you mean? Peter, how is you have Gimmel Records. That's your label. Uh you and Steve Smith. Steve Smith. Yeah, how is the record industry going uh, uh, today for you? Or is it? Uh, do you find it to be? Um, I, me, and Josh have one. Scribe Records too, so we have our yeah. own ideas of what, how it's going. But how is it going for you? The the recording very album? very badly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone knows what's happened to the CD industry what amazes me about the contemporary scene is that there are more and more records actually being made and yeah. fewer and fewer people are buying them how does that work out i mean what you, you should know as well as i do what's the end of this process because everyone every young group that i know and encourage and take an interest in they want to make a cd so they so they they get the money together and they no one there's no money in it they won't get any income from it but it's like the old demo tape I think we used to yeah. do demo. Do you remember? Actually, don't. Um, when we, you know, when we started out, we had a reel-to-reel -reel demo tape which we sent around to people, and it was us got got together to sing a piece and and advertise ourselves. And it's a bit like that. It's a little bit more sort of um, carefully thought through. I mean, the composers are more carefully put together, and there's more than one piece. Actually, it's a proper disc, you know. Yeah, the for for us the CDs just we just have to think of it as a marketing cost in some way. Yeah, um, absolutely. We, I mean, we're like an orchestra now. We we have to, like orchestras are now, you know, they're putting their, their some of their money together to make another disc. That's what they do. They don't expect to get any money back from it, but it keeps them in the marketplace, keeps them visible. And I yeah. suppose that's really what you're doing. And I'm sort of questioning the. I can't, I can't quite accept that because when we make a new disc, we. We choose a composer that, well, we've made 65 discs or something, original ones, not the compilation ones. And so nowadays, we, it's like, like Shepherd disc I referred to earlier. I wanted to make another disc of Shepherd. Now, well, how else am I going to do it? The BBC aren't going to record it for us. Anyway, they, you know, no one would. Um, so we make another Gimel disc of music by Shepherd, and we pay for it. Uh-huh. But then we've got the world has, YouTube has, Spotify has, um, a, a wonderful disc, up-to-date disc of the telescopes. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to, it's becoming harder to justify the the cost of hiring everyone to create all these discs. It's not, it's not a cheap venture uh, in any case, mm. in any way. But uh, Peter, I want to pivot and talk about Singers, and I know this is just a terrible question, but I know a lot of people want to know the answer to it. What is your ideal singer? <laughs> well, my <laughs> ideal singer is someone I get on with. 
yeah. fairly well. I mean, we travel all the time. Uh-huh. We have breakfast together. Oh my god! <laughs> so, so okay. I mean, you know, if we were all at daggers drawn, the group would break up very quickly. But it's important to me to be serious about it that that we all get on well. And of course, the singing of polyphony is a rather democratic process, mm-hmm. and we we want to get on well. Anyway, when it comes to the singing, I want um, someone who's who's who can sight read very quickly because that's just how we work mm-hmm. um, and will sing in tune without endless bickering from me or anybody else. Um, okay. And their voice is powerful. Yeah. It has color, has color and reach, you know, attack. Yeah. Yeah. Agile. Flexible. These are the adjectives I've used over many years. Incidentally, <laughs> they're all true. They, they remain true. Agile, flexible, powerful, with a real core to it. You know, wow. And also, the, the softer moments. Yeah, yeah. How do you? Th- how has the? How has this? The singer these days. Uh, how are they different from the singers you've worked with before? Do you feel like there is a, um, a, a difference in the kind of voices? that are available to you these days than there are when you first started? No, I think I think the voices are basically the same. It's just that when we started, they, they wouldn't dream of becoming a professional singer because that kind of voice was not employed uh-huh. with me. Um, it took decades, really, for that kind of singer to make a good enough living just to do this kind of singing. And in most cities, that's a London situation I'm describing, I think, you can correct me, but I don't think there are many things in the world where my kind of thing could make a decent living day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to get, do you find that it's hard to get the singers you want to sing in Tala Scholars? No. Mm-hmm. I find that they want to sing in the Tala Scholars. Yeah. Has that always been the case? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when we started out, we were a load of kids on the, you know, charlatans. We, yeah, people yeah. couldn't see the point of it. Yeah, it, why stand on stage for a whole concert and just sing this? Uh-huh. People couldn't believe that it, any anyone was going to turn up. Yeah, and listen, let alone pay for it. How? Uh, what's, what was I going to ask? How uh, hands-on are you with the singers? Do you? Oh no! First, before that, I want to ask: How many rehearsals do you have before one. the concert? You have one. Mm. As short as possible. Like I'm not to... exaggerating. This is how it works. Like two hours. Well, in theory, it's three, um, and if possible, we 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 don't run the the full three hours. And you, 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 it's very hard for amateur singers, and I'm not saying you know, but oh, you're yeah. really an amateur, to understand how this works. And I, I, I would love to describe it in great detail. But it probably isn't the moment, but huh. I'm not trying to shock. But this is the way professionals at this level work. They, they get the notes right first time. Yeah. And my best tactic is to say nothing at all. And then, because the rehearsal is just a rehearsal. Then we go the next day. We go to wherever it is that we're going to sing. We then do a, a, a you know in the building rehearsal of maximum of an hour, absolute maximum, mm-hmm. and then we do the show. And it's my job to know that there's been enough rehearsal for the singers not to make unnecessary mistakes. Yeah, so that but they, they know what the lines are. But you must and know then already. That's the thing yeah. is, is that we go. That's the only. That's when we go for it. It's just then yeah. you get one chance in the Tyler Scholars to go for it, and it's in the concert. Yeah, so you must know, you must have a clear idea then of what you want it to sound like. You know, you know the speed, you know the, the loud and soft bits. You've sorted that out already in that rehearsal. I mean, just from, from your standpoint. Mm, what's the question? Oh, yeah, so... So when you only have one rehearsal, you only have that that time to figure out 
what how fast things you want to go when it's going to get loud and soft. So you've already figured that out ahead of time in your head. There's mm-hmm. actually nothing um, in what you're hearing in rehearsal that would sort of change that, you know, change your interpretation approach or anything. It might do. It might do. I mean, yeah. this is quite a democratic process that I run. Uh-huh. Um, if, if somebody says, I, I just don't feel it, it's not going to work. And it usually is quite obvious that it's not going to work. I yeah. do go through the scores and do all that. But but very often it hasn't really been necessary because in the concert, as I say, something will happen that I hope that brings the thing alive there and then. Yeah. And it won't be the thing the next night, which is a good thing. So how do you tell how hands on are you with the singers? How how much how many thing what sort of things do you say to them? Do you do you tell them, you know, how to phrase certain things or um Yeah. Um, I guess a lot to do with rhythm. Uh-huh. I find singers come to me even now, having sung a lot of Baroque music, where the rhythmic um, disciplines are different. Yeah. And I have to remind them that these are Renaissance notes, not Baroque notes. And I want them sung in an absolutely meticulous rhythmic spectrum, you know. Yeah. Like a clock ticking. It's yeah. my favorite metaphor. Yeah. So you you sing a lot of the same piece over and over again in tour. And uh, even when we've performed just the same program, say, three times or three or four times, I definitely feel like the the piece kind of evolves a little bit, um, mm. changes, and and uh, which is super interesting for me. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. That must be. That Sounds like it probably happens for you, but do you ever get to the point where the piece feels like old, or do the singers ever feel like, oh my god, I have to sing yeah. this piece a hundred times or something? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's if, some, it's if the tour is twelve concerts and it's the same program, we peak round about concert four, uh-huh. and, then, and then it's just a question of keeping the interest going. Yeah, somehow. And actually, that's very much up to the audience. You know, if they're if they're really supportive and we feel they're right there, interested, and then it's much easier for us to throw ourselves back into it again. I mean, there are pieces like the Victoria Requiem, for example, mm-hmm. which you really don't want to have to sing every night because it's emotionally gutting, yeah. and it's also very precise. It's sort of pristine precision to get the precision and the emotional gut. Night after night is a tremendous effort. Yeah. So uh, I want to pivot to talk about Concert Hall and Polyphony's place on the main stage. I mean, you've done more than anyone I can imagine um, to put Renaissance Polyphony front and center as it can be on the classical main stage. And, and And I do feel like choral music does take a back seat generally to you know, orchestra or orchestral music. Uh, I, I want to get your pulse on how, uh, on how Renaissance Polyphony is doing as a, you know, as, as a popular classical form of music. Well, it's, um, it's got a lot more profile than it had even 10 years ago. And that's partly because we've done what we've done and other groups like yours have, have done what you've done, and it's become more normal. Mm-hmm. Normal concert goers going to an international artist series in a in a posh symphony hall mm-hmm. um, are just as prepared to hear the Talis Scholars as a string quartet. Yeah, and that that was one of my ambitions actually to achieve that. I don't know to what extent I've achieved it, but it it certainly happens, and I hope in the future. Yeah, the distant future. Polyphony will be treated absolutely on a level with all these other repertoires that everyone accepts as being perfectly normal. Actually, I wonder whether they do still accept that. I mean, that's changed. You know, my parents listen to string quartets all the time. Well, I don't, and I don't know whether you do. But string quartets, concertos, they, they were the they were the standard fare of cultured music lovers in those days. I'm, I'm hoping we will join, our music will join that kind of spectrum. Yeah. Do you keep track of the other groups doing this same music? 
yeah i'm interested yeah. in how they do it and the repertoire that they that they do with the sound that they've got yeah do you, do you have an opinion on on what the current how the current trend of polyphony performance is these days compared to how it has been the sound that's being made now by these groups versus how versus in the 80s and 90s well you have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to <laughs> groups that were going when we started yeah i was writing about it, one of those today it was called cantoris Ecclesia, and i mean it's totally and utterly unacceptable <laughs> the public however had no choice the that was what it that was what was in the headlines that, that if you wanted renaissance polyphony that's what you got yeah. every time i mean there was, there was no choice so they either liked it or they didn't like it and you know, very often they didn't like it they say well i've tried it i wanted to try it and i found that i didn't like it very much mm -hmm. but the well, level I mean, where it was done, you know how it was performed and and um well, it was ugly. The sound was ugly. Yeah. And I'm blamed sometimes for trying to produce a sound that's beautiful by people who have no idea how hard that is to do. But still, they say it's narcissistic or some <laughs> word like that. Well, I would prefer <laughs> to listen to a beautiful sound than to an ugly one. Yeah. Well, you're clearly on to something. You're, you're doing all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there, there are. I feel like there are more and more groups these days doing polyphony, and and a lot of them coming from the from there the are, yeah. from over on your end. Well, interestingly to me, um, there are groups from Spain, in particular, and Portugal, where mm -hmm. you know church singing has been a disaster for centuries, mm -hmm. uh, and recently worse than ever, thanks to the Vatican. Um, and yet there are these young professional groups, one or two of which I've had to do with, that really do get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they want, they want to do it. Yeah, there's but a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there is, there, more and more of them are on this trend of being conductorless. Yeah, I, I only know one really oh maybe <laughs> okay well, well it's a way it's a way to go i mean it depends how large the group is if it's like the hilliard ensemble which is four people yeah. of course you don't have a conductor i mean i try not to conduct when there are only four people standing on the stage with the talus scholars yeah. um it's 10 people it may be a good idea to have a conductor simply just to, to save time mm -hmm. in rehearsal just to sort it out quicker. And and also in performance to give a lead. You know, it, I don't see why it's not authentic, but I don't see why a, a leader shouldn't shouldn't have an idea about a piece of music and then show it in performance. That's my job anyway. And I I'm not handing that over to I, I like the idea of a conductorless group, mm -hmm. but I don't think well, I don't know what I'm going to say next. Okay. Uh, Nothing. <laughs> so I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. In the U.S., we have this nonprofit model. You probably oh, yeah. where we have donors that give um, arts organizations money to, um, you know, for the good, for the good of the cause, yeah. to get uh, to to operate basically and to give yeah. concerts. Now, does the U.K. have something like that? Yeah, we have trust. A, a charity, it's called, uh -huh. and uh, it's a non-profit organisation which pays no taxes, and people can give to it, but it's under very strict conditions that that, that money has to be spent on the, the defined objectives of the charity, huh. and it has trustees rather than um, what do you call them, um, you know, businessmen. Um, it has trustees who do not benefit from it. Is this something that that arts organ? arts groups take advantage of? Well, we did for a long time, uh, we, but we, it didn't alter the fact that no one was going to give us any money. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not 
really. <laughs> and uh, it's a long story, the financing of it. Um, we have always done a very simple thing, which is charge what it costs to put us on. We're not under any obligation to a government handout or to any private individual handouts, though we love to have them. Um, in the end, we a sheer bulk of work. I mean, 80 concerts with, you know, whatever the over the, the little bit of money that goes into the pot, yeah, it's up. So you know, we're we're surviving this period. I think all right. Yeah, yeah. You, you've asked people to, you've asked people to to support you by by playing a playlist, right? Maybe I'll I'll circulate that yeah. around. Now that really is a that I would really like to. To just p push that forward, if you don't mind, it's um, because it doesn't cost anyone anything, as far as I understand it. All you have to do is play on Spotify or um, Apple Music or any of those. The Talis Scholars Marathon. That's all you have to do. You can put it on silent, put it, play it all night, put it on twenty four seven. Just just play it because every track uh, gives us a small sum of money and. If you all do it, then we get a larger sum of money. That's that's the thing that we launched recently, and it's and it's gone nicely. I mean, it's not going to make a big a big tour suddenly possible, but it's it keeps the office ticking and all that kind of thing. You know, we've got employees. Um, and the other thing is that in in with this going on, we we put a donate button. I I, I wasn't asking for donations, but people were kind enough to offer. So we we put a donate button on our website. Is that where it is? Talis Scholars website, I think. And it's in U.S. dollars or British pounds. You can do it in one or the other, and you just donate. Mm -hmm. We'd love you. To, we really would love you to do that. Yeah, I'll post links to both those things, um, so people can, can have at that. Um, so we're now. We've actually gone through pretty much everything I wanted to talk about here. You're, yeah, you're very, you're very quick. Okay, so let's see what kind of. I'm going to look at some of these questions that popped up yeah, here. Uh, a lot of familiar names here. Um, Nick Leach, Marco. Um, yes, yeah, Marco Antonio Garcia de Paz conducts a group called El Leon de Oro from Oviedo in, North, in Asturias in Northern Spain. And I've conducted them many times and I've just, we made released a, a record together and, and now we're releasing another one. And that's the director and founder of that group. And he's a very, very talented man. Yeah, well, so that, would be that group it's was in the, uh, uh, the St. John competition oh, a while ago. Oh, yes. yes, they won the first installment of it. Yeah, they they were a remarkable uh, group. Yeah. They were a nice, a nice rich sound. Uh, Laura Hutchinson, hi Laura, if you're still there, thanks for throwing in a question. She goes A for later. Is there any example of a sacred piece of music written during this time that isn't a liturgical text? Yes, plenty. I mean, a liturgical text is a text that was was specifically spoken or sung as part of a liturgy. Yeah. Um, but there are plenty of texts in Latin, and for some reason the Savonarola texts come to mind in Felix Ego and, and those ones, which were extra liturgical. It's called extra liturgical. There's a, there's a huge repertoire of those texts, yes. Are there... Uh the what about hmm. these Marian? These some of these elaborate Marian motets, right? Were kind hmm. of were sort of non-liturgical. They also were. No, someone's going to correct me now, but <laughs> they were extra liturgical, but they were sung on Saturday after Compline uh. as an extra item at the end of the of the day, and actually of the week, I suppose. It was a Saturday. Compline event, an, a votive antiphon, which includes all those pieces from the Eastern Choir book that I obsess about still. Yeah. Uh, Marco threw in a question. Okay. Peter, your performances always sound fluid. How do you always achieve the perfect tactus in each piece? 
Well, it's just his pure genius. <laughs> well, as I, I have answered this one, really. I mean, it's yeah. it's in, you, you go with an instinct, even if you've never seen that piece before. But but your experience of having done it for many years will probably help you not make a complete mess of it. But I do. I mean. To this day, I start off totally wrong. Not in, I hope not in the concert, but in the rehearsal. That's what rehearsals are for, so that I can get it right. <laughs> They'll get it right anyway. Yeah. That's what I mean about good sight reading. Mm. That's your speciality. How do you... There's some pieces of polyphony that I, I just feel kind of rant, that ramble on and on. I don't seem to do anything. Oh, oh, yeah, no. Entirely. That, uh, that, not every piece that I've come across in this repertoire is great music. <laughs> and I make that quite clear. <laughs> so it's really not, very hard. I'm not that obsessed and bowled over. <laughs> um, I don't really want to go into detail, but there are pieces around the time of the Eton Choir Book, which is sort of 1500 to 1510. That well, and earlier, where yeah. you just have no idea why he's written another. Why so many notes? You, you don't know what they're doing there. You, you can't work it out. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like, this is, this is just hurting my cause to perform this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember doing the Prentice Magnificat? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> well, there's a piece that looked terrible on the page. Oh, but you yeah. and... Orin decided you were jolly well going to do it, and I was jolly well going to conduct it, and it turned out to be a really wonderful piece of music. Well, it's because me and Orin are awesome, so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, a few more other questions here. Um, Christine Bissell, I think that's my friend's mother. You've addressed the ideal singer. Can you address the ideal audience member? What would Peter like musically... What would Peter like a musically literate audience member to listen for, appreciate, etc.? Nice. That's a very nice question. Um, I like people to listen in silence, really. Um, not because they're being respectful, but because they just can't bear to interrupt what they're hearing. Mm. So it's a, it's a deeply contemplative mood that is basically silent in, in, a, in a big hall. That, that's thrilling. When we stop, you know, we stop at a cadence and the silence briefly at that cadence and not nobody moves. You just sort of feel them right there. Yeah. Behind yeah. you, just loving it like a drug. Yeah. Yeah. And so any individual member of that audience would be my friend. I mean, you know, because <laughs> I, I think they're listening. They're listening for the right things. And they're enjoying it in the way I want them to enjoy it. Peter, how are you programming these days? Do you do a mix of modern and old, or do you usually uh, just do straight Renaissance stuff, or, or how do you go about programming? Um, we do more modern music than we used to do. Um, for many, many years, we we just did. We still do whole programs of Renaissance music. One thing that's changed slightly, I think, is that. I'm no longer so keen just to put down a whole half of is one mass. Yeah, Palestrina, Missa, something, that's the whole half. I'm slightly cautious of that now. And I would rather break the movements up and put modern music in to break up the music of the polyphony. And I choose the modern music. Here I have to mention Arvo Pert. Um, because that his kind of music fits so well with the Renaissance stuff. It doesn't. There's no jarring difference. It's a fascinating perspective on on what Palestrina did, and and he knows that. I've asked him. It's, it's more or less deliberate. So you would you break up mass parts then for these for these long? If you're going to do a mass, you just break it up, throw some things in between. Yeah, not the bird four part mass, which only lasts twenty minutes. Mm -hmm. Or some of the Joscan messes which we're doing next year for the Joscan 500th year, they are so compact, so tightly argued. You don't want to you don't want to mess up people's concentration. You just want to go show the genius of the man by going straight through. You know his power of argument was so strong. You don't want to break it up. 
Yeah. With some other, other composers, not quite as, I don't know what's the word. Um, you can break them up, and, and then it's nice to come back to a, a sound world which you've established and, and is familiar now, and yeah. then go on. To, it works very nicely, that. And I, Pert and Tavener, Nico Mooley, the, these composers really get this. Matthew Martin. Uh huh. I should think about doing that. I, I normally can do it. The audience love it. I mean, they never know what to talk about afterwards. It always interests me to hear which piece is the one that's going to get mentioned afterwards. And it's never the ordinary stuff. Without yeah. the ordinary stuff, they would, you know, they'd run out of, mm -hmm. there, wouldn't, there would be too much extra, extraordinary stuff. But, right. but then suddenly you get, I don't know what it is. Yeah. So, uh, slight change of topic. What is the hardest singer part to staff? For you, uh, well, those middle parts you talk about and you have suffered from, yeah, as a singer, um, they are very hard to find people who, who simply can sing two octaves, you know, full voice, so every note is equally balanced in the range. It's, it's virtually impossible for a modern singer. We just don't train like that. Yeah. So what I do, actually, in case anyone's interested, is put, um, you know, an alto with a tenor. Or even an alto with a baritone, and get the alto to do the head voice stuff, mm -hmm. and, the, and the lower voice to do the rest of it, and then they sort of mix and match. Yeah, I've, it's called roving. We call it roving. Roving, yes. That's one of our words. That's yeah. a helpful, um, yeah. <laughs> a very helpful thing. But yeah, we've we've luckily found just over the last few years, um, Josh. You know Josh Haberman. He can really yeah, Haberman, yeah. just make yeah. some serious noise in that area and uh, a high couple high tenors so uh th that's sort of who we pair together for for well, these they're, they're absolutely invaluable singers and yeah. for all i know the the place was stuffed full of them in the 16th century i mean that's that's the kind of thing yeah one wants to thinks must be the answer but we don't have them anymore yeah you see falsetto theme was very rare in those days uh-huh not like modern falsettos throughout the range they only did the top notes i yeah. Styles. Well, great, Peter. I think this is a good stopping point. Um, I think we've, I think we've gone through all the questions um, here. And uh, Lawrence, you guys good to see my too. most memorable concert, Mark. Oh yes, I'm so sorry, Peter. Tell us what your most memorable concert was. I'm not sure I've got time. Actually, I mean, we. <laughs> we oh, well, I, I wanted to ask you what memorable meant because, you know, one remembers concerts for different reasons, but um, either they go chaotically wrong, in which case you remember them. Yeah. Or they, <laughs> they go wonderfully right, and you remember some of them. Um, or the, the circumstances just let you down disastrously. Yeah. And um, those ones you really remember because there's nothing you could have done. It's pouring with snow or something. <sighs> well, so there you go. You're not going to share. You're not going to share one or the other with us. Um, well, I was going to give you. I don't know how local this this conversation is to to you in Seattle, but I was going to say that we enjoy singing in St Mary's Cathedral in Portland as oh, one yes. of the great venues. Yeah, I'd like to say that. It's absolutely true. We've sung seven times in Portland, Oregon. And we've sung every time in St. Mary's Cathedral, and it's always been wonderful experience. I can't remember them all, but I do remember the, the sound in that place. Wonderful. Yeah, nice building. Very nice building. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure Seattle has equally wonderful buildings, but we keep singing in different places in Seattle. We've yeah. sung about five, five or six different rooms. <laughs> yeah, we've been singing at St. James, where you, where you sing, where you perform there. Yes, that's the last. Was that the last concert we gave was in St James's? Yes. Yeah. And the, and the course took place there as well when we gave a course. Yeah. In Seattle. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We, we, that's we all right. Very. Yeah. I mean, that's a great building, and uh, the, the sound in there is huge. I yeah. mean, you know, 
I don't have to go out and listen to it. It's all right where I am, but I've got a feeling it bangs around a bit. I may be wrong. No, I think it sounds quite nice. I, I sat behind the altar when I saw you guys there. It was great. Yeah. Mm. That's but, right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Peter, anything else you want to add? No. <laughs> yes. No. no, I mean, I could go on forever, but um, I think this machine of mine is going to run out of electricity. That's one thing that's been worrying me. Well, yeah. So that may be the doctors. Okay. Well, Peter, I want to thank you for coming on this show and uh, talking to you. It's good to catch up um, like this, at, at least. And I hope you and the Telescholar is the best in the future. I'll make sure to post all those links on. Uh, your Spotify and uh, yes. and, and Will you, so you, the book can be bought from you, can it? And I'll send you yeah. another box. Is that how it's going to work? Exactly. So there's already a link in the description. If you want to copy the book, which I highly recommend, you should buy it um, and I will ship it to you. Um, and it'll be signed by Peter himself. And um, it's great. It's it is actually annoyingly hard to get a hold of, but since I've got some coming my way, I do hope you will you will get your hands on a copy. So until next time, Peter, thank you yep. so much. Thank and, you, Mark. And uh, thank you very much, everyone. Yeah, regards. Thank you.